For more interviews with leading figures in Asia from the world of business and beyond, head to the App Store or Google Play to download the Tiger Hall app. Successful people tend to have this tremendous drive, this tremendous hunger to keep going, to push through pain barriers, to push through adversity, to find a way. You know, when you're hungry, you tend to work harder and you just tend to to push on. We're in the Tiger Hall with Simon Taufel. Simon, you are a former international cricket umpire, winner of the International Cricket Council's Umpire of the Year Award, a record five consecutive times, meaning you are generally considered to have been the best umpire in the world at this time. So using what you learned in your cricket career, you've now turned your talents to performance management training, specialising in leadership, conflict management, mental resilience and goal setting. So we're hoping to tap into some of your expertise in this podcast, where we're going to be talking about habits and mindsets for high performance. So can you start by explaining what does high performance mean to you and what are some of the characteristics of high performance mindsets and behaviours? Pippa, thank you very much for that introduction. I love to share and I'm very pleased to be on this podcast with you and everyone else who's listening. For me, can I just start by saying that term of high performance, it really doesn't sit comfortably with me. In fact, when I stopped cricket umpiring at the elite level and I took a role on with the ICC, as you talked about with performance management, I specifically pushed back on my boss to say, don't use the term high performance in my title, because I think it creates this connotation of elitism. And people generally struggle with this term of high performance because it creates all this expectation around it's a destination. And for me, in the performance management and performance development area, it's all about continual improvement. It's about getting better every day with every performance. So I would like to have us think about, and I'll answer your question through the the lens of continuous improvement, about what can we do every day and every time we go out there to perform at our chosen task? What can we do better through that continuous improvement cycle? And that cycle looks briefly like planning and goal setting. Then you go out and perform. And then you sit down and do a self-assessment and you get some feedback. And then you do it all over again. And every time that you do that, the objective really is not high performance, but it's about competing with yourself and getting better every single day and every single time you undertake that chosen aspect. So for me to be the best in the world and for me to look at what the best in the world do, it's about focusing on the process, not the outcome. Process, process, process. Because what happens when you don't get that outcome you're looking for is ultimately you go back to your process anyway. So that's where the focus has to be. And for me, the focus is not on about high performance. It's about the process. Now, your question then related to the behaviours, which I think is a great question about what are we looking for? And for me, when I was coming through and looking at ways to get better every single day and researching who the best in the world were and what they were doing better than anyone else, The characteristics that really stood out for me were things like hard work being a fundamental and that old phraseology that the harder we work, the luckier we get. Passion. Passion is another quality that tends to come through. Why passion? Because when you're passionate about something, you tend to go that extra mile and it doesn't seem like a chore. It doesn't seem like work. It's just who you are and what you want to do. One word and one trait that doesn't get enough airtime is commitment. I see a lot of people who dream, who have visions about getting better or getting to a certain place about where they want to be, but just lack that holistic commitment that goes along with that. They're sort of pretending to themselves that, yeah, they're trying, they're working hard, but are they really committed um, to finding a way? 
and we might get to finding a way concept later on in this chat. Accountability, you know, just take, take responsibility and be accountable for your own performance in your own game. So whatever you decide to do, own it, name it. It's your reputation on the line and accountability is a really strong thing. So when I look for people who blame, blame the system, blame the environment or play victim, right. uh, yeah. those are the sorts of things that, that really do stick out for me. Emotional intelligence, being a team player, being able to fit into a team, being able to add value to a team is a characteristic that really comes to the fore. And two other ones I'd like to touch on quickly would be innovation and having the courage to try new things and to explore areas that you've never been before and go outside of your comfort zone and stretch that ability to go further. And this concept about having a growth mindset and in this era of high performance, as you described it, where do setbacks and failures fit within high performance? It's almost like setbacks and failures don't have a room in the term high performance because you're supposed to perform very well all the time. Well, that's not the case. And in my world of continuous improvement, we need to embrace and, and really be comfortable with those setbacks and failures because they actually help us to get better. So hopefully, Pippa, that answers your question there. Yeah, no, beautifully so. So for you... What do you think got you to being number one in the world? The, the key behind your success? Perhaps it's, it's a number of these characteristics you've already mentioned. Yes, indeed, some of them. But you also need, I believe, a bit of luck. <laughs> I, I was very lucky to have some really good people around me when I started officiating at the community level with the New South Wales Umpires Association. And I think it's really important that you have some luck, both on and off the field or in your chosen endeavour, but you also surround yourself with some really good people who you're able to listen to. But for me, that transition from good to great, and that's really what we're talking about, is the soft skills. You know, mechanical skills, technical skills, you can all learn them to a certain extent. And as managers, leaders, successful people, we always have this ability that you can shift talent or you can shift the skills a bit. But it's really hard to shift the attitude or the soft skills. And that's why I believe that character and chemistry are far more important than competencies and capabilities. So I'm going to give you a couple of soft skills that I think helped me take me to number one in the world in my chosen field and help keep me there for a while. Mm. So I'm going to talk about courage. And as I articulated before in that previous answer, having that courage to be yourself, having that courage to go to places that you haven't been before, and that courage to say no to the distractions and that commitment to keep you on task. That courage to say no is, is not um, often quite there uh, in a lot of people. Humility. Uh, I probably could have started with humility, but I find humility keeps us grounded. It's that sense and that belief that we don't know it all, mm. that there are people around us who actually have more collective intelligence to guide us, show us and pass on. And that humility is that tremendous quality required to effectively listen and open your mind to new ideas, new concepts, different ways of doing things. So humility is a big one for me. Uh, hunger. Hunger is the thing that drives you and, and it's related to passion. But hunger is a word, again, a concept that doesn't get talked about enough. Successful people tend to have this tremendous drive, this tremendous hunger to keep going, to push through pain barriers, to push through adversity, to find a way. And for me, that meant reading books. It meant having conversations with people that I wouldn't necessarily have reached out to. And you've got to really want it. It's related to that hard work concept we talked to be before. You know, when you're hungry, you tend to work harder and you just tend to, to push on. One or two other concepts I'd like to talk about would be respect. 
and respect for the opportunity. Very rarely do opportunities come along a second or a third time and you only get one crack at it. And in the world of sport, when you do get elevated or in the world of corporate enterprise and you get promoted, you know, when the opportunity comes along, it's too late to prepare. (laughs) So you really have to respect the opportunity. You have to respect the delivery in front of you. You have to respect every day as being a bit of a gift. And what are you going to do with this day that actually takes your career and your reputation, your brand forward? So respect is a real thing. And as I touched on before, you know, the people around you. So my coach was very big about having a really good A-team around you. And some of you might remember that old sitcom, that old movie called The A-Team with George Papad and B.A. Baracus, those sorts of people. But the A-Team for me looks like coaches, family, friends, colleagues, who you have coffee with, even just how you cross-pollinate with people in a similar industry to you and being able to bounce ideas, concepts, who's in your corner as a mentor. They're some of the, the real key things for me that helped me get to number one and how to stay there. Mm. So I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you to imagine that you're out there on a cricket field and you're observing these world-class cricket captains. What are the characteristics and the mindsets and behaviours that you're observing in them? Pip, it's a fascinating question around how I would officiate because for me, I truly tried to desensitise myself from the game, from the emotion of the event. You know, sport's a funny thing and sometimes boardrooms are a very funny thing where emotion takes over and people get emotionally hijacked and all of a sudden it's all about the result or the scoreboard or getting their way rather than remaining calm, composed and staying rational and in the moment. But some of the leaders that I've stood back and reflected upon and that I have really connected with do a couple of things really, really well around how they get the best out of their people and what has made their team successful. Generally, they tend to be very clear and focused on what their team is about. They seem to have a common purpose and they've all bought into that common purpose. And they play a particular brand of cricket in my game that people understand and that everyone knows their role in the team as to how they're supposed to contribute to that. So being very clear on that common purpose is important and people tend to take ownership of their roles and they're very clear about what they have to do. The successful teams and captains that I've come across, and I'll mention a few of them very shortly, are very good at having an agreed set of norms and set of behaviours and and an identity about that's consistent with their behaviours. You know, things like their uniform and how they travel, how they respect the team rules and and being punctual. And I'll give you some classic examples around that. So the team bus might be leaving for the match at 10 o'clock in the morning. And if you're late for the bus, well, the bus takes off and you have to make your own way there. Mm. And guess what? You're only going to miss the bus once because getting to the team dressing room late via a taxi is not something that goes down well with the team. But again, attendance at training, which compulsory sessions does everyone have to turn up to and which ones are, you know, sort of discretionary. So having those team rules are really important. Um, The culture that drives results, and that's all about respect, knowing your role, the selection around character. And in Australia, I went through a golden period with a number of captains, with Mark Taylor leading the side, followed by Steve Waugh, followed by Ricky Ponting. And the best way I can describe it is there was this culture of character over cover drives, that it was as as much about the baggy green cap and standing up and representing your country as it was about winning on the scoreboard. And for anyone who knows Australian cricket, the role of the Australian captain is probably equal to being the Prime Minister of our country. That's the sort of position around leadership that it holds, and that's the responsibility that our captains really undertake. And for me, 
Mark Taylor was a great captain because he offered constructive feedback. Steve Waugh was a great captain because he tended to have the ability to show a lot of self-belief and faith in his particular players that they lifted to another level. And they thought, well, if the captain believes in me, I might as well believe in myself as well. And so people tended to lift to a level that they weren't necessarily going to in the first place. And other traits that I saw around teams, particularly in the leadership space, was that the better captains like a Mahala J. Wardner would take responsibility if the team lost. But if the team won, he would take all the credit. <laughs> and it's that type of support and that type of leadership that really engenders the team to perform well. But one of the other traits that I saw when teams are really tight, and I would say I would view teams in the training environment just as much in, in the field of play, if not more. And if you were a team off the field, in the hotel, in the airplane, in the training session, then you tended to be a really tight team when things got tough and you needed to lift on the field. But that's related to probably my kicker point on this, on this question, that fun and enjoyment don't get enough focus on within the team environment. And the teams that actually enjoy each other's company and are able to be inclusive and try to have a lot of fun along the way tend to be the more successful ones. Why? Because they've worked on trust. They've worked on relationships built on trust. You don't have to love everyone in your team, but you've got to be able to trust them that they're going to do their job, that they're there to support you. And it's in everybody's interest to be successful because winning teams rarely get changed. Losing teams often get changed. So liking each other is underrated. Well, in the world of corporate, in the world of professionalism, where you don't get to choose who you work with, when you don't get to choose who is in your team, a quality that I haven't spoke about is about adaptability in relationship to team members. And you've got to find out every team member's got something about them, some skill, some avenue, some focus that you don't know. And you've just got to find a connection point with them because, yeah, you don't have to like them, but you've got to get on with them and you've got to be successful as a unit. So putting team success as your number one, when you talked about that common purpose earlier on, that's really where you get to, that trust of common purpose and helping each other and we're all in this together. Mm, nice. Are you able to share any examples with us, Simon, of make high-stress situations where you felt as though your ability to perform or make decisions was perhaps challenged or compromised? Umpiring is a very funny thing that we do. You, you can't wait to get your next appointment, your next test match, your next one-day international. And as soon as you've got it, you can't wait till it's finished and try and get through and survive without any criticism or, or battle scars, as I would call them. But I'll give you a couple. I'll give you three, in fact, that I've, I've really thought about. Um, Trent Bridge, my worst test match ever in terms of a decision-making performance. What I'd learned through that experience, and imagine this, but I'm in the middle of New Zealand playing England at Trent Bridge, and it's day one, and I make a mistake in the last session of the first day's play, Matthew Hoggard's bowling, and I make an error, and I pride myself on my performance, and I want to get everything right, like every umpire does. And when you're told that you make a mistake or you, you see a replay out of the corner of your eye on the big screen and you realise you've made a mistake, you've still got four plus days to go. And you think, well, my ideal game, my perfect game is actually gone. How am I going to come back from this? And on this particular occasion, it was very early on in my test match career working with the ICC. It was in 2003, 2004. And what I reflected upon is I got emotionally hijacked. I was so fixated on this getting every decision right, that I was not able to park an error, to park a setback, and to refocus and reset and carry on. And it was really about this perfectionism versus excellence. And 
the pressure of trying to recover from one setback overtook me where I got in this vicious cycle of beating myself up and I wasn't able to stay connected with the present and make the next decision as clearly and as accurately as I could. So one mistake on day one turned into around seven mistakes over the next three to four days. And it got to the stage where I walked off the field, I think on day four, and Clive Lloyd, who was my match referee, and I looked up at Clive at lunchtime and I said, Clive, is there any chance I'm going to get through one session here without making a mistake? And he just put his hand on my shoulder and he said, mate, just hang in there. And that's really what it's all about. And while that sounds very simple, that's not what I was telling myself. You know, I was beating myself up. I was talking very harshly to myself and it's almost impossible to recover from that. But that was a real learning experience for me. I'll give you another example. I'm in the middle of the SCG very early in my international career. I've got the great Brian Lara standing at the uh, non-striker's end playing for the West Indies. And I've got Michael Bevan somewhere in the covers playing for Australia. And all of a sudden, Michael, who doesn't normally talk a lot, is starting to get under the skin of Brian Lara, say a few things. And I didn't help myself in this particular match because I made another mistake early on in the game. So I wasn't Brian Lara's favourite cup of tea because the decision went against the West Indies. But all of a sudden, I was jumping into this conflict too quickly. I had two very experienced international players who were letting each other know how they felt about each other. And I jumped in too quickly. And because I hadn't earned that respect, particularly with Brian Lara, the batsman, and from a technique perspective, it's always easier to manage the batsman rather than manage the fielder because the batsman's right next to you. And generally, they say nothing anyway. So for me to keep Brian under control, I found that incredibly hard because this was new territory for me. You know, I jumped in far too quickly and, and I went from a player versus player conflict to a player versus umpire conflict. I changed the dynamic and that made it really difficult for me. So that was very stressful and that made it really hard for me to recover. And the third one I'll talk about, it's about some, something that happens that's out of the blue and all of a sudden it's a massive distraction to you. I was doing a test match in Pakistan, Faisalabad, and there's this massive explosion that happens on the edge of the boundary. And Daryl here and myself both look at each other and we thought, gee, where's that come from? What's going on here? And of course, it's not the safest place in the world at times. No. <laughs> you know, with these loud noises going off. Um, so all of a sudden, our normal routines were completely distracted. And all we did was we got the players in the middle of the ground. England was the, uh, the side in the field. Uh, they were batting at the time and Pakistan was fielding. Got the players in the middle of the ground and we said, what are we going to do here? We decided to take them all off until we could find out what took place. But our routines in that whole process around pitch management and ground management were in a new space. We went off for about 10 or 15 minutes. We discovered that the explosion was a, a large gas bottle. We came back on and Marcus, Marcus Treskothic looks at me and says, what are all these marks on the pitch? It looks like someone's been doing some ice skating down the middle of the strip. And Darren and I looked at each other and thought, we have no idea where that came from. Anyway, we looked at some videotape later and we discovered that Shia DeFridi had decided to, to do some dancing as he walked <laughs> off the pitch when we were taking the players from the field. Now, normally we would be the last ones to walk off and we would make sure that nothing untoward would happen. But because of this stressful situation, our normal routines were broken. And I think, as I talked earlier on, it's all about the process. And when your processes are really strong and your routines and rhythms are always strong and set, you minimise the chance for bad things happening. So there's a couple of examples. No, oh, thank you. So to end, Simon, I, I know we, we've touched on this a little bit already, but I want to take you back to the cricket field again. Just having observed some of the world's most extraordinary high-performing teams, you know, their routines, their habits, their behaviours, what, what, what can be translated from the cricket field into the corporate world? 
couple of thoughts come to mind. Uh, number one would be confidentiality and staying really tight as a unit and making sure that you don't air your dirty laundry in the public domain. And I, I think that concept of criticise in private but praise in public is really, really important to keep the team strong. I think what I talked about before around trust and having really clear boundaries around what's acceptable behaviour and what's not, it's also that concept of you've got each other's back and knowing that at some stage one of you is going to have a bad day, one of you is going to fall over. And it's that ability for you to realise that team success is really important, that unless you are successful as a team and you pick that person up and the concept that form is temporary but class is permanent, that really needs to kick in. And if you are in a tight team environment where you've got that trust, you've got that belief, you've got that common purpose, you've got that ability to call out bad behaviour or bad practices when they happen and have the courage to do that, but with respect. And if you can do that within the team environment and you can put this little bit of a shield around you because there's going to be criticism, there's going to be bad matches, there's going to be tough days, there's going to be bad results, they're going to come. But you've got to have that tightness, that unity. And the best cricket teams that I've seen do that in the world, the Australian cricket team do it very well. I've seen India do it extremely well under Gary Kirsten. And I've seen South Africa do it very well under the leadership of Graham Smith. And other teams are going to, and the media will do this, and the selectors will do this from time to time, or the public will do it, where they will look to divide and conquer. And that's that unity, that tightness that you've got to keep focusing on. Mm, very nice. Okay, thank you so much, Simon. You're welcome. It's great to be with you.